Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. It's Ian Ward. How are you doing today, Ian? Very well. Thank you very much for having me on, Alex. Thank you for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. First thing we like to do with our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? So, uh, I'm from Ireland. It's where I currently am uh, living at the moment. Uh, just because after my, uh, my first route of chemo treatment, I, I wanted to go home and visit my parents. And uh, so, I, they ended up giving me a puppy while I was here. And so, that's added uh, some more extra weeks to, to stay here because she has to get her, her shots in order for her to travel and that sort of thing. And uh, but I, I normally live in London, and I moved there when I was in my 20s. I didn't have a particularly uh, eventful uh, childhood. It was very happy. There, the, the skills I went to were really good. They were uh, of a small scale, so uh, and it, it was um, a very liberal school, so there was no incidences of, of bullying, really. Everybody got along. We all went to each other's house parties when we were growing up, so... Very, uh, very simple, quaint in a, a small city of Dublin. Did you have any motivations, inspirations, or passions growing up? Um, yeah, they've, they've stuck with me my whole life. So there was, um, when I was a child, I hated, I thought I hated sport, but I actually didn't. I just hated football because um, I just thought it was so boring. And then, that put me off a lot of sports for many years. And then when I went to, uh, when I went to, we call it secondary school, you guys call it high school. It's the same thing. When I went to high school, they, um, uh, they had us playing rugby in Ireland because the schools are all so small. It's usually like, okay, you have two choices of sports. You can sp- play this one or you can play this one. And uh, our choice was hockey or rugby. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll try rugby. See what that is like. And then loved it straight away. And then from that, I started realizing that I actually am, very passionate about sports so that was um that was a passion uh video games from the get-go uh i went through a spell of going off them because i was playing uh, online video games too much and it was just like sucking up my time and then recently i started getting back into them i think with a combination of um willpower and just learning how to uh how to balance life a bit better and then getting to see them as an art form and enjoy them a lot more. I used to just be thinking like, ah, they're just a wasted time. They don't do anything positive for you. What's the point in doing them? Blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, wait a minute, you know, during COVID, especially you're basically hanging around with your friends, except you're doing it through, you know, a medium. So uh, I've definitely changed my mind about that. Uh, film, always into film since, since, uh, since the cradle. Um, and then with television, with the golden age of television that we're living in now, that's obviously risen up. Uh, the same way and music music definitely um music festivals especially which is something that has uh oh, it's, that's that's a big loss to me is not being able to go to gigs during uh, during this pandemic and i think those would be the those would be the big ones the big four yeah music film video games and sports with those four what is the biggest thing you've learned about yourself going through those Hmm. Or did like sports teach you something or did video games teach you a skill that you didn't know you had? Um, I, I don't think I actually learned that much from any of them, to be perfectly honest. I think they were just things that I enjoyed 
in terms of an actual education, definitely sports because that's actually that's my professional career at the moment. So I then became deeply interested in the science behind it. I, I, I dabbled with trying to learn musical instruments, but it never really um, fully grasped me. And I, even though I do video editing now and play video games, same thing happened that it's never really been so much of a passion as to create a film. Like I like creating sketches, but uh, the level of editing that you need, uh, it is difficult and it takes work, but like in order to make a film, the level of editing is, you know, multiplied by, I can only imagine a thousand. So it would definitely be sports in terms of um, uh, learning how the body works and become very interested in anatomy and uh, how things, why your body has blood and, so on and so on and eventually I went into uh, learning about that in university and that was I suppose that would be the most educational uh, of the of the hobbies what was that dream job that you were wanting oh stand-up comic definitely that's been um like not from childhood but like once I started thinking like wait a minute you've been making people laugh your whole life how about you just do it for money and once that sort of penny dropped, it was like, oh, God, you should really go out and do that. And um, so I've, I've, again, sort of dabbled into chasing that one up. Uh, and it's only recently since I started doing, uh, focusing on a YouTube channel that I've realized that it would actually is better. It's more my cup of tea to uh, make a video and edit it slightly and then put that up. Even though the medium of making a crowd laugh is amazing there's too much for me anyway of the sort of the build-up of the anxiety and the questioning of the of the the thing that you've written out where it's like is that the funny part is that the funny part should i be putting the emphasis on this and then when you actually go and do it live it's quite common that you know midway through your joke everyone starts laughing and you go oh that's the funny thing and then you say your punchline and they're not really that uh excited about it and you're like okay i need to rework that and that that was a, a difficult one for me to get over because if I'm not in the mood to do something, I'm not very good at doing it. I'm terrible with that sort of thing. And with stand-up comedy, that's not an option. If it's your set is done on a Thursday night, you need to be there. You need to be going in with whatever energy you bring to the performance, whether it be you know a lack of energy, whether it's deadpan and you're you're cold, and that's what's amusing about you, or if you're like uh, I would be a bit more sort of screamy and shouty and that sort of sense of humor. So I would have to be, you know, six cup of copies in if I was in a, uh, having a bad day. So I found that that was a, a much better way for me to make people laugh was just sort of when I'm in the mood, make something, put it to my face on a phone and then bing, send it up there. And then that's that done or keep it there, edit it and on it goes. With the comedian part, do you have that chance that you would want to do it in front of an audience when we're able to get back to that? Or is it still you're feeling more comfortable just doing it behind a YouTube video or something like that? No, I would still like to go back to it when um, uh, COVID opens up a bit more uh, because there's still, there's loads of different things that I never tried that I wanted to try. One of them being to just get up on the stage Uns, well, not so much unscripted uh, because it still is experienced and literally just have like f three stories, three funny stories that make people laugh. The kind of things that you'd be telling people in a, at a house party or something. 
and literally just go, oh, this story and just tell them that story like I'm having a conversation with them. Um, I would really like to try that. And there's, there's all sorts of things. I think I would quite like to do uh, live sketches like the old Monty Python when they used to do a live show. That's what they would do. They would be doing their sketches, but they would be doing it live. I think I would really love doing something like that because I have... Um, uh, I did all the, the sort of the school plays in uh, when I was in when I was in school, and we did some ones that were based around just making jokes, and that was that was great fun to do that. And it wasn't the same level of um, overthinking, I suppose, because I didn't write it; someone else wrote it, and then it was sort of my opportunity to be like, okay, well, I can't like you know teeter off this too much, but I could make a joke of my own in there by saying one of the words in a certain way which would kind of sway it towards me and what I wanted to perform, which I suppose anyone wants their performance to do that sort of thing because otherwise it's just bland, boring crap. Mm -hmm. So talk about what was next for you through education. Did you go to college, university, or did you go right into the workforce? Oh, no, I was, I was in university for fucking ages, absolutely ages. I did computer game development first, and I hated that from a very, very uh, early stage because they, uh, I was expecting an amount of creativity and, you know, sitting down with people and being like, okay, well, what makes a good game a good game? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? And what I found out very quickly is that there is tiny elements of that. It's like 1%. And then the rest is just coding, 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 coding. And even when you're coming into an avenue that you would think would be a bit more artistic, such as graphics, it's still like, nope, you are in coding and you will code and that is it. So uh, that really wasn't, um, that really wasn't for me, it, like mentally uh, in terms of how smart I am, I wouldn't be smart enough to be able to, to have that level of concentration either. So after that, I studied paramedic science and that went well, I got that. And then I didn't get work after that because Ireland was in the recession at the time. And then so I moved over to England. That's what was the, the sort of the, the cue point for that. Because you could learn nursing in England. The NHS would fund your education. And I thought that nursing would be similar to uh, paramedic science, which was a very, very dramatic, uh, incorrect choice of mine. The, the level of autonomy is completely different and that was the thing that was exciting for me and so I almost finished my dissertation while doing nursing and then it was almost like my brain just refused to do the work it was just like I would sit with a computer that was like uh, uh, what was the it had the in, the ethernet uh, was it the ethernet I can't remember what the system was, but within the NHS, you can have certain computers that are cut off to, to mainline internet. So you, are, you can't get distracted from uh, social media or just like uh, Googling random stuff. It's all based on uh, medical knowledge. And so surely in a situation like that, where there's no distractions, I should have been able to finish my dissertation and I never even got a full page written of it. My body just would not do it. And then... After that, I finally switched into uh, sports science and that went brilliant. And I started my career during uh, my work with um, university because it was uh, a lot of it. I had a lot of spare time the way they had this university structure set out. So I was working since I, uh, ever since I started really. So that went really well. You talked about the different uh, 
avenues that you went from computer development to paramedic science to now sports science. What brought you to go from one area to another area that are completely two different topics? Well, the, um, the paramedic science was because I was looking to get into the fire department and I still would have been interested in the fire department my whole life. And every so often I've checked in, but they're very difficult to get in. They don't, um, they don't announce when they're hiring, which I think is a stupid system because they're, they're banking on the people who are going towards them to be uh, someone who's, it doesn't necessarily, they're, they're not keen, but it's just like they are looking for jobs at that exact moment and they're clicking on the, the homepage. Whereas if they said, we are now hiring, we are now looking for people, you get applications from people of a higher caliber of, um, uh, of not just being like, there's, there's a lot of people. When we did the paramedic training, there was a lot of people who were also looking to get into the fire department. And there's a lot of people who want to like wear the uniform rather than do the job. We came across some guy who, um, uh, I, I think he might have had some, some social mental problems because he just came out with a very, a lot of very odd things. A lot of the time, like I think he did have some sort of a, some sort of, issues but like a simple one uh was that he had a fear of blood and it was like you you should not be a firefighter you should not be a paramedic but he still went on with the the education and when i say he had a fear of blood he didn't tell us he had a fear of blood uh we were all doing the um the checks for uh how high our blood sugars were which involves a little thing that goes click and it pokes a, a very small needle into your finger uh, you barely feel it. It feels like uh, if someone were to shock you with a lighter. And we were doing that and doing the little tests. And then he did it. And it wasn't the pain. It was that when he saw his blood, he fainted. Oh, no. And still continued on. And there were other stories of... Um, he, used to, he used to carry around a pocket face mask with him all the time and a pocket face mask comes in a container that's about this big it's cumbersome it does not fit in the average pocket and again it was like another sort of red flag it was like this guy wants to be like in a movie and save the day or something like i don't want him on the same cruise me <laughs> like he'll run into the fire and then not want to know what to do and um yeah i kind of feel like there's a lot of people who end up working in services like that just because they want to be flashy rather than the person who's best for the job but anyway i digress it was when i was interested in that sort of thing i was also keeping myself really fit and because whenever you're keeping yourself really fit you're learning uh, you're trying to educate yourself on what is the best form of fitness training and then so i had all this knowledge that was not going anywhere except for myself and then once i finished nursing i had then you know, got a huge amount of knowledge in terms of the, uh, how the body works, how the body functions, the anatomy of the body. And then it was a, I think I was already working as a referee. And then from there, uh, I had connections to uh, teaching other sort of fitness classes. And then I just said, oh, well, you should, I should study sports science and, you know, progress this way because I love these, uh, this sort of work. So why not pursue what you like because you've been pursuing nursing which you didn't like and that was a big mistake so now you should go the other way and it took a while but i finally made the right call with that one so that was a relief after university what was next for you and um, well i was already working and so 
I just kept going with the um, with the the same sort of avenue of jobs. So I was working in gyms. I was teaching fitness classes, and um, yeah, I think that was that was sort of it. Like I've been working with the same company called um, Go Mammoth. I think they're primarily uh, based in the UK. I'm not sure if they've uh, extended outwards, and that's just teaching teaching fitness classes and I've been doing that since about seven years now, maybe, maybe eight. What's the most rewarding thing you get out of doing that job? Oh, I've got a, so I, I, I referee touch rugby and by a mile, that's been the most rewarding thing because it's uh, it's done on a Saturday and the games usually start about 11 o'clock. Then they finish at either two or three, depending on whether it's the winter months or the summer months, because you get more people during the summer for obvious reasons. And the the people that come down, there's often sort of new teams, and the new teams that come down have players that might get a bit sort of uh, like stage fright, and they might want to sh- show up being like, "I don't think I'm fit enough. I don't want to play with people," and which is, you know, I I understand the the sort of the, that fear. But the thing is that the people that come down regularly are often unfit themselves. They're just here for a laugh. And uh, so they, they end up not coming down. Their team are down players. And that sounds bad, but then what happens is people who hang around, they'll often play a game and then just stick around and be like, oh, someone always needs a sub. And then someone will. And then everybody ends up playing together. And there's like so many people, we all call them whores are just like, you know, they will play for any single team. And uh, that creates this great amount of um, community sense that people all know each other. People are familiar with each other. Uh, There's constant house parties and meeting up and people go to the pub afterwards and watch rugby or um, some of them watch football. And it just, it, it builds up and you get down, you know, everybody. And that's quite rare that you get that sort of level of, um, like that same sort of small college uh, sports team or uh, the the high school that doesn't have too many people in it. You get to know everybody and it's like a community. And in a big city, that is very difficult to, to naturally foster. And so that is by a mile the best thing that I've gotten out of these jobs. Is rugby in Ireland and England like a sport that, well, I know like football is very popular in England. For Ireland, is rugby that sport that everyone gets together and kind of socializes and stuff with? Because like here in the United States, we have so many sports that any of the sport bring people together. How is yeah. that where you are? In Ireland, the way it kind of works, it, it, visually, there'd be a lot of people that would watch. Uh, that I'd say there's probably more people that would watch rugby than football. Now, I'd be biased because I'm more of a... Um, I'd play rugby and I'd be more interested in rugby, but our national team is quite good. So when a team is good, then it attracts more attention because it's like, even though we are, we're always terrible in the world cup. Um, there's always that kind of hope where it's like, Oh my, like we've beaten the all blacks a couple of times. We could do this. We could do this. Like we've been number one in the world, like for, you know, a couple of weeks, the odd time during, uh, during the last few years. But it's still that, like, you know, oh, my God, we're number one in the world right now. Um, so it, there is that level of, of hope. Like, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a fool's hope, but you, you think we could win this. We could win this match. We've done this before. So that level of attraction always brings uh, – it's easier to attract people to that. And then uh, football, 
No, no one goes in. It's it's like people go in watching football to the World Cup. I will follow uh, 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 Ireland in the World Cup and in the in the in the European Cup as well. But you you're watching and it's like you know how far can we go? How far can we go? And very few people be like we could win this World Cup. It's like no, we can't. <laughs> no, we can't. But uh, depending on where you go in the country is a massive sort of indication of what teams you follow because there's um there's also hurling and Gaelic football and um Gaelic football is you're able to hold the ball and then you you bounce it every three steps there's a lot of similarities to uh, Australian rules uh football if you've ever seen that except the ball is spherical rather than uh, egg-shaped and if you're in Dublin you you would tend to be less interested in um, uh, GAA, both hurling and football. <laughs> More hurling than football. Football is uh, where D- the Dublin uh, GAA football team is quite good. But the further you go out into the, the outer parts of the uh, outer parts of Dublin in all directions, Dublin is the largest city by a mile. And then everything else outside of that is often significantly different. And with sport, they're a lot less interested in rugby, a lot more interested in the GAA. And uh, they often make fun of us because rugby is an English game and uh, GAA is uh, fully... Uh, one of the part of the reasons why there was a, an argument against England that we should have our own independence. The, the, uh, the Gaelic Athletic Association was used as a, a method to be like, this is ours, this is our sport, it is our culture. Uh, we are different to you. It was also a, it was also a place to hire uh, hire young men to be a part of the the Irish Army back in the day because it was like you know hey they're athletes and they're passionate about our culture so like you know come on in here's a gun. It was uh, yeah back when it was the Irish Republican Brotherhood rather than the army. So uh, it was it was used as both the cultural way of suppressing the English back in uh, in around the turn of the century and also used as uh, the the army's way to hire people in order to. Uh, repress them physically so yeah it is it is it's a surprisingly complicated question what you asked there because if you were talking to someone from cork they'd be saying something completely different to uh to what i'm saying now i think that's something interesting with any even with people i talk to on my shows which we talk to everyone all over the world they always have different answers with what represents their culture and what brings people together because for us in the United States, it could be anything. It could be a TV show. It could be a sport. It could be a moment, an event that's happening that brings us together. But then you, talking with you, you, it's kind of different. Like the culture is different. And so to me, I learned something new just by hearing what people, like how everyone interacts with each other. So, and you talked about the different footballs. I'm like, I've never heard of it, but now I'm going to go watch it. <laughs> because now I'm interested in hearing or seeing what it's all about. So. Hey, it's a bonus for me. Yeah, hurling is a hurling is a really popular thing for uh, for Americans to watch because like it's it's really violent. They run around with sticks and they just like smash the shit out of each other, not in their shins or anything like that, but like sometimes kind of in their shins. It's it's wouldn't be as violent as hockey now in what they're allowed, but it uh, it has similar amounts of needless aggression and then the the referee comes over and the way the referee would break it would be like, all right, stop, stop, stop. It's very rare that someone would actually get sent off. So there's uh, there's lots of videos out there on YouTube that people love watching where it's like how Americans react to 
uh, to first seeing hurling. And apparently, I can't remember what his name is now, but there's some guy who, um, uh, this, uh, I, this huge, big black guy, and he's like, he's famous on YouTube for being, he just, what, he just loves all sports. He's just so sports crazy. And he got so interested in hurling that he started flying over to Ireland to watch the matches. And because he's such a different person to what the culture would be used to, everybody started to fall in love with this guy. But he's like, he's, he's like, he's totally different to us, but he's mad about our stuff. And so they started getting him on like, um, not quite panel shows, but like they would have him on local radio stations and stuff and get him to commentate because he knew what he was talking about as well. Because if he goes, I wish I remembered this guy's name. He's such a funny guy. If this guy gets interested in something, he goes whole hog and learns everything. He knew all the players' names. He knew their backgrounds. Like he's just crazy like that. So there's a sort of a... um. Uh, an exciting appeal to a lot of Irish people to want to push hurling over into America. There, there are um, American uh, hurling teams from like the Disparo spreading out and in and around uh, uh, New York and Boston and sort of the, the known big Irish strongholds of, of America. I'm sure there's ones in Chicago and, and elsewhere. During this time, talk about the moment that changed your life with your diagnosis. Well, Sort of, none of it changed my life really because one thing that is uh, unique about my situation is that uh, I am asymptomatic. I don't have any uh, any issues that uh, uh, most people who end up with a a brain tumor they find out they have a brain tumor because they have had a seizure. They are needlessly dizzy. They are having constant pounding headaches uh, that nothing. Uh, nothing brought them on. Like, you know, they didn't hit their head against, you know, a stack of bookshelves or something. And then afterwards they have headaches constantly. So I went in to do a medical trial and they had this little white dot on the scan and they said, you've got a brain tumor. So from that, I then went in and I started, uh, I got my second, uh, my second scan and they said, it's growing now and we need to deal with this now. But again, no, no symptoms and even the the brain surgery i was at risk of losing well i wasn't at risk i did lose um the ability to speak properly but they've said it is likely to heal because you're so young relevant uh, relatively to uh, someone who has had a, a brain tumor normally it's at 60 when these things get discovered anyway and because you are so young your brain has something called plasticity so it's likely to repair itself within six months to a year and like no one wants to be able to suffer uh, a poor quality of speech in six months to a year but that's not that long so like most people could be able to deal with that and it fixed itself within six days so uh, again like i don't have the speech problems that uh, i would have i had the sort of anxiety about the fears about and everything else has been like loss of hair that's that's the only sort of big negative that i've had to that i've had to deal with but again that is likely to grow back so and even if it doesn't like it's as long as you're not losing this part of your hair it's not too bad you can just kind of go with a crew cut and you don't look that weird so the um my daily routine of what I'm trying to uh, accomplish now, but that wouldn't have been a huge, hugely different from what I was doing uh, before because I was making 
video video game edits and uh, footage. So I'm well used to waking up and being like, all right, today you're going to try and uh, do this amount of uh, video editing on your computer and then uh, do X, Y, Z later on in the day. And so that hasn't changed a huge amount from when I said, okay, well, now I have to increase the amount of uh, footage and content that I'm putting out and who am I talking to and uh, try to spread the word out as much as possible. But that sort of fits into the same sort of level of uh, productive homework, like working from home that I was doing prior to all my surgeries. So I think my life has changed in the same sort of natural way that most people's lives change during, say, COVID, where you are given, uh, you're sort of forced to change through circumstance. Some of the videos that you have posted or photos, it talked, you talked about your surgeries and how you were awake or from what the photos were. Talk about going through yeah. experiences. Oh, that was, that was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. I enjoyed that. Yeah. The, uh, they tell you that the, that there's no nervous system within your brain so that it won't be painful. But what they don't mention is that when they're actually opening up the tissue to get at it, that there is going to be a huge amount of pressure on your actual skull, which starts causing a pounding headache, even if they have local anesthetic on there, which they did. It was, it was fine, but it's a, uh, the feeling itself, or oh, they have to get a, uh, what felt like some sort of a scraper, like that you would get, uh, st like strip paint off a wall. And they were just there to the, the top part of my head, being like, <laughs> getting underneath to where the, it's attached to the actual skull so that they can again flop the skin over and then get access to the bone. And even though that wasn't sore, it was still like, oh God, oh, they're like, they're going like this to my head. And, uh, yeah, oh, that was that was grim. I remember during that, I started just um, humming a song to myself, being like, okay, if you sing this song, and it was like a long song, it was like seven minutes long. If you sing this song to yourself, if you do it like twice, this will probably be over by then. So just try and like, you know, get your mind onto something else and stop thinking about like, you know, paint being stripped off the top of your, your noggin. And um, also the, the positioning of where I was, the the where my ear was uh, out here was sort of like house uh, like a massage chair with the, the face down massage chair and so i was on my side like this pillows in between my knees but that that's that's fine most people would actually sleep like that in some capacity but there is the the moments where you like you know roll over to the other side and you shimmy around a little bit and I didn't know how important those little shimmy movements are until you are not allowed to do that until you are in this position and there's no moving. And after three hours, it gets, you start getting really bad cramps and you can't stretch them out. Uh, I think at one point I, I had to tell Tim like, here, Tim, when I'm stretching, can you not continue like operating i know i'm not moving my head much but like you know i don't want to tempt fate he was like all right all right all right yeah go on stretch out there and i was like trying to do this but you still can't get off the get off the operating table because there's all sorts of wires there's like nerve ending wires that are hooked into my chin nerve ending wires into my hand uh there was there was a third place oh into my shoulder but that one wasn't bothering me too much so like 
you, you, you have this sort of fear of like, well, I don't want to do this because I might pull a wire out of what has been hooked up into me. So yeah, the, the, the cramping was the worst by, by quite, a, quite a big stint. And um, yeah, it didn't last that long though. Like four hours in, in surgery, it's, it sounds quite long, but it, um, I thought when, when I heard brain surgery first, I would have thought that it would be like you know, nine hours or something. So when, I, when he said four hours, even though it is long, that was less than what I was expecting. So I was like, <sighs> relief. Well, going through four hours of being awake and going through that had to be pain. Or we talked about the pain that it did with the, I can't just imagine pain scraping. And oh, that's just, talk about after the surgery, did it feel like that the tumor was going away or did they, it's completely gone or what happened next? No, so um, the uh, Tim was uh, Tim Jones was straight with me from the from the get go. He's a great guy. Uh, he was saying to me like a tumor, even though it looks like this in your head, those are just the bits that are sort of most visible. There's still gonna be loads of little like um, tangents where the um, the like the tentacles or whatever of the tumor go out, but they're not quite as strong. So uh, think of it as roots in a tree that there are lots of little bits where the, the roots themselves even break off and tinker off like that. And because it's brain surgery, they can't just like scoop out a nice big, even clump. They, they go in and they just take what they can. And the way your brain functions as an organ is it's sort of like, uh, you enter into a, a big house with lots of rooms and each room is similar to a house um, made for a certain thing. So you have your kitchen, which is made for making food. You have your toilet, which is for using the toilet. You have your bedroom for bed uh, and so on it goes. And then you have your dungeon for whatever you use your dungeon for. And then on and on, every, every room has its own sort of unique thing. And there's a certain amount of stuff within that room, but like a normal room, there's often room to navigate around. And the way, if, you, if you're in there and imagine that the, you're taking away the space, but not taking away the things, you can do that without damaging the things and still being able to use the bed, the office or whatever. You don't need, to, if you take the airspace away, it's fine. And so that's what Tim's job was. It was to go in, have me speak to a speak with, speak, speech and language therapist. And then a bit of irony with me mucking that one up and, uh, and ask like, you know, okay, which one is the dog? Which one is the cat? And if I say the dog is the one on the right, but if I stammer or slow that down, if it's like the, the dog is the, well, I wasn't doing that, but if it was like the dog, if there was that sort of um, added pause that wasn't there before, they would know, okay, we're digging out space from the bed here. We don't want to take out too much space from the bed because then he's not going to be able to sleep. So they would find somewhere else and they were like, uh, which one is which? And I was like, the dog is the one on the right. Okay, we're in air territory here. This is not needed. And then that will get taken away. So that was what he had to do uh, the whole way through the surgery. So in the end, it worked out pretty all right. I was able to, to speech for much of it, but they can't take what is a part of the bed or the you know office space because there's no even though it would elongate my life expectancy it would permanently damage my ability to speak which 
I, I personally would prefer to live a short life of quality than a long life of being in bits. And Tim, Tim suggested the same thing. He would, that was, that was his view for how he would prefer to live his life and how he thinks most people would, even if they say they wouldn't. And I was just straight when I'm like, yeah, yeah. Give me, give me five years where I'm able to, you know, like, you know, drink whiskey and fight people in the street and, you know, argue with my parents. <laughs> None of this, like, out in bed for, for 20 years. Like, ah, like that guy from Hannibal Lecter. What's his name? It's a guy who uh, Gary Oldman plays. I can't remember, but you know, you might know who I'm talking about with his messed up face. Is that your mission now is to live out your life doing everything that you want to do, what you want to accomplish and not have to worry or think about what you're going through? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, w- I don't have a, a bucket list. A lot of people sort of have that made, uh, made up, but uh, my, my, my bucket list is pretty uh, small at the moment i would say there's two things on it and it is the first world record and the second world record and then once that if that gets achieved within two years uh i'll probably have to make another bucket list and see all right well better get back to this because if you're not doing something then you start thinking about things that don't get you in any positive direction because you might just start worrying like you know oh my god what's the point in in doing x what's the point in doing y if you know oh i only have this amount of time left I think, well, that's not gonna, it's not gonna make it any better. It's not gonna make it any longer if you start thinking like that. It's good. Well, it's gonna make it longer, but it's gonna make it longer like watching a clock makes time longer. So, it's not gonna be a pleasant uh, situation to be in. What made you want to pick those world records that you're going for? So I am. Um, I've done marathons in the past. Uh, ever since I stopped doing the marathons, I. I went the complete opposite way. So the way your, the way your muscles work is they, uh, there's two types in each muscle. One is called fast twitch and one is called slow twitch. The fast twitch is for uh, anything to do with strength or power. So I uh, think uh, a very high jump, a very hard punch, um, sprinting, all kinds of sprinting. And then the slow twitch muscles are more for a slow, steady, say, keep going, keep going, keep going. So that's your endurance running. That's your long distance cycling, uh, all, all that sort of thing. And now there's a lot of things that will have spillover where you need to be able to do both football. Like um, uh, soccer would, in, would entail quite a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of both. Whereas American football, American football is all fast twitch. There's very little need for endurance uh, you need to be fit, but you need to be fit to uh, recover to use your fast twitch muscle. It's all fast twitch, power sprint, bang, boom. Uh, but then if you were to look at something like UFC, UFC would be one of the more, like a very interesting um, uh, way to, uh, to look at the fast twitch and the slow twitch muscle because it is so varied. You would have people who are all power and they are knockout punches, but then if you get them into the third rounds, they're in deep water and they're in trouble. Um, Francis Ngannou is, uh, would be a famous example of that where he would just smash people and blow their heads off and just down they'd go. And then once he got up to, I think it was um, uh, Stipe Miocic and Stipe was just like an excellent wrestler and he just locked him down and prevented him from being able to use his big powerful knockout punch then he tired him out 
and then once once he lost that original power he couldn't change how he was able to fight because he didn't have that sense of endurance and there's a uh, conor mcgregor was a great example of that as well uh, very good with the the quick punches knocking people out and then once he came up to uh, nate diaz for the first time nate diaz was a great man for endurance and uh, still is and the exact same sort of thing happened where Connor just blew out his gas tank and then he wasn't able to keep going. And then Nate Diaz came in and just, just got rid of him real quick. And um, so it's that sort of thing where I had been training for distance all my, since the, my, I turned 20, everything was focused around uh, running marathons and uh, long distance running. And 10 K was the shortest distance that I would run when I was training. And, after I had done like triathlons and stuff like that I, and the London Marathon, I was just kind of a bit sick of it. So I was like, all right, enough. I'm going back to, I'm going back to rugby. I'm going back to uh, the gym. I'm going to lift some weights. And so then I started training my muscles in the complete opposite way. And while there is a, a bit of a pie chart where there's like a, the bit in the middle where you can have both, it is almost always your muscles converting over to one side rather than you keeping a bit of both. You've got to work hard to keep that middle spot. And so I've had all this experience with marathon running. So I'm very aware that when people run marathons, they run them for charity. So when I came across the idea of, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do something for, for charity. I'd all been, been primed to do a little bit of something for charity after my first, um, first surgery i then thought well let's look into marathons i know i can run marathons i know i can run them decent enough and they're associated with charity so let's go with that one first because it's it's basically it's a simple concept so i looked into that and then i looked into ways well how can how can this can be jazzed up and i knew that there's also this sort of unique thing with uh, with marathons where you can get a world record with a marathon very easily by just dressing like something silly. So, and if you look at the times for how fast someone has like run a marathon dressed as a a human organ, you have to choose the organ and you can have a unique time. So let's say if you can run a marathon and you can run it in three hours and 30 minutes, if you want to have a world record, you look up and you could just scan and scan and scan and find a fastest person to run a marathon dressed as a Viking. And then you, you do a dress as Viking and now you have your own little, hey, I've got a world record. And um, so I looked into a funny way of doing that. And while I was looking into that, I then thought, well, how much has anyone actually ever earned running a world, uh, 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 a marathon? And I got on and found out that it was someone who was actually living in London. And so then that was sort of piquing my interest a bit more that it was even though I'm not from London myself, that it was sort of like a, uh, uh, a home, home advantage sort of mentality behind it. And it was three, in and around three million, depending on which currency you use. And so I was like, well, that's hard. That's really hard. Three million is not a small amount of money, even though you would hear it in film and hear it in sort of... Um, the costs of certain things and to do with like say policy or um, uh, politics and the government spent this much money on this. And well, when you actually break it down, it's, it's huge, it's a huge amount of money, but I was still there thinking 
this could be achieved if I focus really, really hard on this. And I've already got the knowledge of uh, what sort of training is good for uh, marathon. So, and I live in the same uh, city as where this record has been set. So it all, it, it just sort of pieced together quite nicely. You know, it's like, this is the one I don't need to look anymore. Uh, I don't need to make this more complicated. If I was to say, I want to earn 5 million, I don't think it would be nearly as attractive as someone to say, I want to break a world record of any kind. And then it was like, all right, well, if you're, if you've got cancer and you're breaking a world record, both for speed in a marathon and for um, raising money in it, surely people will be interested in that sort of thing. So that would then almost in a weird, in a weird workaround, it would make it easier to uh, achieve the charitable goal. Definitely not make it easier to do the speed thing, but that's not the, the most important one is the, is the, the money raised. The, the speed one is just a, an addition to make the, the charitable one more, more appealing to uh, a wider audience. Talk about the path. Um, reaching those goals? How is it going? How is training going? How is getting the word out there about raising money? Um, the training has sort of, I, I'm in a, uh, an odd place at the moment because it is, it's, it's been improving, but because of the treatment that I was going through, it causes an extra amount of uh, fatigue. And now I'm at the, the end part of that. Uh, I finished up my, my chemo, my radiotherapy. And so it should start improving. And then afterwards, we'll sort of see the, the fruits of how much my training has, uh, has improved or not. And uh, what, was it, what was the other part of the question? How is like training going? How, how is it going reaching your goals? Like, are you on a steady path with raising the amount of money that you're wanting? Or is it still taking slow steps during this time? Um, yeah, the, so the, the money being earned has, uh, that's not really something that I've been following because in order for it to be, uh, if I was to be following it in the same sort of way as uh, days to achieve versus how much I have earned and um, then I'm far, I'm way behind, but that's never been the goal really, because I'd be more concerned about, uh, getting a large audience who is aware of what is going on because, uh, the way the way I would have the money coming in would be uh, slow, consistently rising, which uh, is not on track. But with gathering an audience, an audience usually builds at an exponential rate. So uh, if, if it's, let's just say there's a popularity scale, 10 is the most popular thing possible. And, you know, zero is no one's interested. Let's say I'm at a five. Uh, and if you look at other people's um, social media um, following increases. YouTube is the easiest one I found because you can, you can't tell how quickly their following has grown, but you can look at their oldest videos and you can see how many views that they had. And then so you can make a ballpark figure of how long it took them to get to a significant stage. And it seems like it's a kind of a, a monthly, I wouldn't say doubling, but a set amount of increases per month. So, if they had 10 in January, they might have 15 in February, but then they might have 30. And so it goes in a jumping scale. So I've been more focused on, on that element because I want to ask people for money in 
uh, in a wave format. So uh, at the end of a month when there's enough people who are aware of what I'm doing and they're, uh, they're uh, subscribed or whatever the word may be for whichever social media thing that I'm doing, I'll put on some sort of event that is entertaining in some way, whether it be just interesting, whether it be, I'm going to try and run that, um, uh, run up that mountain or run up seven mountains in seven days, something like that. People like that sort of thing. And then have it documented live and then make it so if you are watching, every time I get to a peak or a halfway point on the mountain, you should give five dollars, euro, pounds. And then that's the whole idea of having a large audience to be able to ask that because once there, there's a certain audience size, I think it attracts more people because there's more involvement. I think there's definitely a sweet spot for that sort of thing that someone could um, write something in and then someone else could respond to them. So they feel like they're a part of them. Um, a part of the the journey, so to speak, which which they are. That's that's the whole idea that I'm trying to to get at is that people they like in in video gaming. There's often quite a lot of uh, charitable donations done in video game where people try to do something called speed running, which is just finishing a video game as fast as humanly possible. And what they often do is they will have people donate, and then there'll be a, a host who's overseeing the person who's doing the speed run. And the host will say like, hey, so-and-so from X place has just donated 10 quid. And then often there's, a, there's an audience of people who are there live at the event. And whenever uh, uh, money comes in, way, everyone starts cheering for the person. So it's like, it's beneficial for absolutely everybody. They really, they, they have that feeling that I have contributed and it has helped. Whereas uh, the sort of the, the, the classic format because it, it was impossible to do this one. The classic format has always been donate and just hope that it goes uh, and helps someone. If you're donating to uh, one of the cataract uh, disease um, or not disease treatment um, uh, charities that there are, I think it's Sightsavers is one of them. You give the money and you hope that it goes to where it should, but you're not really sure. You never get to see... Um, the the child that has their sight repaired so i'm not saying that it's like poor uh poor human reaction to it but there is that sort of drive that we have to 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 see the benefits of whatever we have done so if someone could see a child that has now had a basic surgery that's not too difficult as now able to see Sightsavers will get a lot more money if they could actually view wow i gave 20 quid and that child is now able to read a book. That's powerful. But we don't live in the world where we get that. We've got to sort of do it with a bit of faith. And therefore, Sightsavers doesn't get the, uh, the kind of money that they would. Same with all sorts of charities, like uh, anything to do with the environment. You don't know if that money is, is helping enough to, for it to make a difference if there's you know, an increase in oil um, fracking or whatever and it's like all right well i here i am with a bag for life like i don't think it's making that much of a difference the final question i'll ask you is for someone that's listening to this interview what tips or advice would you give them to overcome their challenges accomplish their goals and rise to their challenge staying focused is definitely the most uh, the most important thing um 
the the basic goals that I've seen people not achieve would would 100% be from me um, working in the fitness industry. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a hard hump for people to get over because there's so much information that goes out there. So they don't, they then start doubting the diet that they are on. They then start doubting the, the training regime that they've on. They get bored when they don't see results straight away and they get deterred and they stop. The most important thing is cons- uh, consistency. So a focus is the wrong word, actually. It's consistency. It's, it's getting up. It's go doing the thing that you should be doing. And it's okay to have doubts and think this isn't the best thing, but it's not okay for you to quit that thing when you start thinking that there's something else out there. What you need is you need to stick with something for a while, stick with something for three months. If you then don't have positive results from what you've been attempting, sticking with that plan, then it's like you have an experience at that stage. So now you know, okay, even though people have told me that the five by five system is very good for growing strength. And I'm, I'm not putting down five by five. I've been using that for forever. And it's a great effect. I love that system. It's so simple. Um, but let's say it didn't work for someone. Okay. That didn't work for me. Maybe I'll try something else. And if they try something else and it doesn't work. Okay. Maybe it's not the training routine. Maybe it's my diet. Ah, it's because I've been eating nothing but like, you know, diet water and then sugar. Maybe I should change it up and add in something else. So I think that's definitely the most important thing is just, it's not about, it really isn't about the quality that you're putting out. It's about the consistency of that. And then from that, it grows. So just always every day, try to keep doing something, however small, even if it's like, um, I'll just stick with the the physical training thing because that's what I've started with. Even if you are training for a marathon and your legs are really tired, find something, stretch them, like keep one hour that is dedicated to the marathon that you are trying to run, whether it be, uh, I'm going to stretch my legs out today. I'm going to open up my hips, which are feeling a lot more tense. I'm going to uh, try to get a foam roller and like push out as much of the lactic acid as possible. I'm going to do some pull-ups or I'm going to do some press-ups just to um, strengthen my core or just to exercise while my legs are tired to keep up the habit because habit is everything. So that would be the number one thing that I would try to push to people. Well, Ian, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We all have learned so much and we're excited to see you accomplish all your goals and what the future looks like for you. Yeah. Well, if you want to do that, the way you can find me is if you go on to, uh, I made a website and then you can funnel your way through to uh, whether you you rather watch me make loads of dick jokes on YouTube or whether you'd want to just follow the journey in a more serious sense on Facebook. And if you go on to uh, cure cancer or die trying uh, com, and then instantly click on the about us because everything else in that website was a, was a template from the website creator that I made it off. And it's not, it's not relevant. The about us is, uh, is the, the, the siphon. That is what the whole purpose of the, um, the website is for. So if you're, if you're interested, that's where you can find out more. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you follow and subscribe on our YouTube channel to the full length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.